Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And uh, as I was saying to the folks in Cape Traverse this morning, I don't know when we started our study in Matthew, but uh, it's, I'm glad that we are coming upon this section uh, just as we're coming up to Easter. I certainly didn't plan it that way. I'm not that smart to think that far out. It just happened to, to fall uh, uh, in that way. So, but I'm thankful that it, it, the timing is good in the Lord's providence. Uh, so far in Matthew, and in, in particularly the passion of, of uh, Jesus, we've been seeing Jesus' interaction with His adversaries, with Judas Iscariot, with the Jews, with the Romans. We've been seeing the unmitigated evil and the brutality. And uh, it's one thing for the, the leaders to see Jesus as an imposter or to, to disagree with Him in some way. But there was a, a, a higher level of intensity of evil when it was applied to Jesus. And so we see that there's more at work here than simply disagreements. Uh, we see that the devil himself is at work. And that's not just surmising. That's not just uh, trying to read between the lines. That is from the mouth of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus says, this is the, the moment of the hour of darkness, the power of darkness. He says, this is Satan's time. So Jesus realized that Satan was at work in a particularly unusual way, with a, a particular intensity. We know that uh, from the Word that it tells us that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus and to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. And uh, so we, we see this uh, all unfolding in the, the physical suffering of Jesus. The, 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 the flogging and the crucifixion itself. And we kind of unpacked a little bit of that and, and what that may have been like for Jesus. The flogging, the beatings, the, the public shame being in a hall of 600 soldiers all shouting and laughing and mocking and doing all sorts of things to Jesus, taking their frustrations out on Him. But as we've been saying all along, the, the true soul of Jesus' suffering was the suffering of His soul. As bad as all of these things were, it had not yet reached the crescendo of what we see in the passages before us this morning. And as I've been saying, this is the most important moment in the history of the world. As the Son of God, the Creator of the ends of the earth, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God, man, manifest in the flesh, hangs on a cross to atone for the sins of the world. Sent on a special mission by God to redeem His creation. To turn back what was ruined many, many centuries ago in the Garden of Eden. To turn back 
the hate, to turn back the prejudice, to, to, to atone for all of those things. Not just to change people's minds. Not just to change people's behaviors. That's not what Christianity is all about. That's part of it. But it's more than that. What we see before us is Jesus paying the penalty, paying the price for all of those things. Not simply coming as a, a, an arbiter between two people trying to bring people together. Just saying, why can't we just get along? That is not what Jesus principally has come to do. He has come to satisfy God's justice. Because God is a good God. He's a God of justice. He loves justice. We should love justice. And the principal act of Jesus on the cross was to pay the penalty, and to pay the price for what we could not do. That makes this moment the most important moment in human history. And it's painted for us with words and images and descriptions of just an awesome intensity showing us through these pictures of darkness and later on earthquake of what is really unfolding and transpiring in the heart and mind and life of Jesus Christ. And so we move beyond the dealings of Jesus with the Jews or the Romans and so on. And even the devil himself. To his interactions directly with the Father. This is where Jesus feels the pain the most. And it's here where we see these things come about. The darkness. The earthquake. All of these things. Because there is now a separation. There is a pouring out of judgment from heaven on one person, on one locality in all the universe. And it is being poured out like an unmitigated volcano upon Jesus. We read of it in verse 45. Down to verse 50. That's our text. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait! Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Just want to again take our time as we go through these paragraphs together um, and examine them each one and think about it's important for us to think about at so many levels as we think about what it cost God to save us, what it costs us to be here. It costs us nothing to walk in through the door. 
But it costs us a great deal in many ways for us to be in this church. It's important for us to think about as well as we think about what it means to turn away from what God is doing here. And to to separate ourselves from the person and work of Jesus. So this event does not only tell us about the great cost that brought us here, but the great cost at which we turn away from that in the end. But also, it is a means of worship for us. We are, we are worshipers. God made us not like the animals. He made us in His image. That's what Genesis is all about. God made this creature and that creature. And then, and then God said on the sixth day, let us make man in our own image. There would be something of us in Him. He would be a worshiper. He would be an adorer. He would be a reflector of who God is. And that was lost through men's disobedience. But now, as we've been seeing in Colossians, we are renewed in the image of our Creator. Praise God for that. What a wonderful thing that is. What a, an, an awesome calling to be renewed. To be like Jesus. But at what cost? And it is that that brings us to our knees in worship and joy and love to God. It tells us, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Jesus hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Six hours on the cross. And at 12 o'clock in the, in the middle of the day, when the sun was to be out in its strength, there was a darkness that came across the land. Some have pondered what that is. Was it a, a lunar eclipse? And so on and so forth. Well, the timing would have to be extraordinary. God could have used that, but it seems like it was a, a replication of the great darkness that came upon the Egyptians back in the book of Exodus. For three days, the land was in total darkness as one of the judgments that God brought upon the Egyptians. Again, darkness is seen as an element of judgment. And now, not three days, but three hours from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, darkness is over all the land. What's going on? Well, as I said, darkness is described for us, is used for us all throughout the Old Testament as a picture of God's judgment upon a people. Not only on the Egyptians, but on God's own people. This is what it tells us in Amos 9, uh, Amos chapter 8 at verse 9, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth and every waste and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. We see some extraordinary things there. What is encompassed in this picture of judgment? 
But the darkening of the sun at noonday, I will make the sun black out. And it will, it will reflect my anger upon sin. The sins of my people. But in particular here, the sun goes black at noonday. And a profound darkness falls because of what is going on in the life of Jesus. What is happening in Him particularly. The darkness symbolizes what should be happening to us and what should be happening to the people of old. For their rampant disobedience, generation after generation, following after this God or that God or, and, and, and falling away from the Lord, not loving Him and obeying Him. And God at various times brought judgment upon His people. But now, there's something completely unique that is unfolding here. That the darkness is now engulfing Jesus. That it is a picture of the relationship now between the Father and the Son. Between the Father and Jesus. That there is this that there is this rupture in their relationship. And that the light of God's face, the strength of the brightness of God's face is no longer shining upon Jesus because now Jesus has taken the place of the sin bearer. He is the sacrifice. One person has described it this way. The darkness meant judgment on our sins. His wrath burning itself out in the very heart of Jesus. So He, as our substitute, suffered most intense agony. Indescribable woe. Terrible isolation and forsakenness. Hell came to Calvary that day. And the Savior descended into it and bore its horrible horrors in our place. What a description. Jesus does this willingly. He's, as we've been seeing all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, He's completely in control at every moment. He is never a victim. He is never in the wrong place at the wrong time. He Himself guards against this moment not happening. He says to Peter, put away your sword. How shall the Scripture be fulfilled? He constantly knows why He has come. And this is what is happening. As this person describes, God's wrath is burning itself out in the very heart of Jesus. James Boyce said the darkness also cried out against the blackness of our sin and testified to the tremendous cost to God of our redemption. It cries out against us. What we see unfolding here in the darkness and the agony and the separation is what sin deserves. We swim in it all the time. We're like fish. We don't even notice it. It's the air we breathe. It's in our thoughts. It's in our reactions. It's in our feelings and in our intentions. It's in every part of us. That's what the Bible 
why the Bible describes it as total depravity. We are depraved in every faculty of our being. Sin has done its work in every area of our lives. And so we are so much a part of it. We don't realize it until we, are, we look. We can surely see in the world the depravity of man. It's on the nightly news. Every time we look at Ukraine, we see, look at what's in the heart of man. Look at what man is capable of. But we cannot afford simply to point the finger at the Russian army or at, the, at Vladimir Putin and say, look at how evil he is. Because it's some of the greatest men of the Bible who describe themselves in those ways, oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Or David, who said, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He, he said, I was twisted from my very get-go. And so, the, the, the Bible writers are, are slow to point a finger out there until they've pointed a finger back at their own hearts and lives and what they're capable of and what you and I are capable of. Except for the grace of God. You've heard the term, but for the grace of God, there go I, right? And that's not whistling Dixie. That's not just a saying. That's true. It's because of God's mercies that we don't become a Vladimir Putin or an Adolf Hitler. It's in the heart of every person. If those safeguards were dropped in our hearts, and God from time to time showed that in the lives of some of His best people in the Bible to show them and to show us what was really there. And that's what is being pictured for us here. The darkness. The judgment. If we want a picture of what it means to become an enemy of God, to turn against God, we get a window here that what is happening to Jesus over these few hours on the cross, the Bible is saying, is that which will engulf the soul of people throughout eternity. That blackness and darkness and separation from the favorable presence of God will be the destiny of all who turn away from such love. That's why the Bible puts it out there to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and all throughout the Bible saying, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, how can we escape this? And so there is this, this event happens where the, dar the, 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 the sun is darkened. That there is an intense darkness that comes upon the earth for three straight hours because God is showing in picture form, just as we will see in a moment, through the bread and the wine, taking the bread. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is what happened to the, blood, the body of Jesus so that you could be saved. This is my blood, which is poured out so that you could be saved. And God is saying, this is a picture of what is unfolding in the heart of my Son. This is what I'm doing to Him. I'm casting Him into outer darkness. And what you're seeing with your eyes is what He is feeling in His soul. And so we see secondly, not only the darkness, but the dereliction. 
the damnation. That's what we mean. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In the Hebrew, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a profound mystery here when we read these words. Probably the greatest mystery in all the Bible. And nobody can adequately explain it. How do you, how do you explain the Son being forsaken of the Father? How do we think through those categories and those, when we, we, we think of God as inseparable? Can the Trinity separate itself off from itself and no longer be the Trinity for a few hours and then come back to being the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That's not possible. God says He does not change. There's a mystery going on here between, in terms of the, the Son of God enfleshed in the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God. He is one person in two natures. And it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth who dies on the cross. God cannot change. God cannot die. God is eternally blessed. And so, that's why I say there is a mystery going on here that, that Jesus really and truly suffered. And that His suffering carried with it the value of being the Son of God in the flesh. But beyond that, we, can, we, can, we can't go. As I quoted C.S. Lewis a few weeks ago, there is a mystery here, he said, that even if we had the ability, we wouldn't have the courage to explore. And so what do we do? We stand back in amazement. And where we, where we stop inquiring, we start worshiping. We stand in amazement. We fall at our feet and say, Oh, the love of God for a lost sinner such as I, that my sins would bring out of the heart of the Holy Lamb of God the spotless, pure Son of God, these awful cries of damnation. Damnation is nothing, is nothing less than that. Here He was made that which He hated. He was made a curse for us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, He was made sin for us. He who knew no sin that we might receive His righteousness. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Isaiah 53 was being played out perfectly. Even in the midst of all this hatred and violence, every T and every dot of the Old Testament prophecies were coming true exactly in the life of Jesus. Being wounded for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Jesus enters into it completely and without restraint. And the fire of God falls upon Him without restraint in all its fullness. And as Luther says, He becomes the greatest criminal that the world has ever seen. He becomes the wicked who is now cut off from the land of the living. He becomes guilty of every crime that man has ever committed. Your crimes and my crimes. He not only takes the punishment of it, but the guilt of it. That's why the Bible tells us that when we are washed in the blood of Jesus, we are washed not only from the condemnation of guilt, but from the, uh, the condemnation of sin, but from the guilt of sin as well. That we can stand before God without a sense of guilt before Him. I can look up into the face of God and He can look down at me with joy and without reservation. Why? Because... Jesus took the guilt with disagreements there's sometimes always a sense of residual guilt right you make up with somebody but then there's always that sense maybe in them or in you I still did this and I still feel bad about what I did and so on. with Jesus shame covers his face he takes the guilt. He pays the price. And that is reflected in this cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is cut off from the presence of the Father. Because God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. As He says in Jeremiah, he must judge the wicked. He, the soul that sins, it shall die. And we see that being played out in the life of Jesus as the guilt bearer. Just as the scapegoat in the Old Testament had the sins of Israel laid over it, prayed over it, and then that animal was led out into the wilderness where it was consumed by the wild beasts. That's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is being cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of My people was He stricken. And it's God that's doing it. He has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God has done it. Which issues in this great cry. And even with that, even with the darkness, even with the cry from the lips of Jesus, these ignorant men at the foot of the cross are still making the wrong assumptions. Listen! He's crying out for Elijah. Oh, doesn't the Bible tell us that Elijah was swept up in a, char a, a, a whirlwind, a chariot of fire? That he did not die and he will come again. To save the righteous. Let's see. Let's wait and see if Elijah comes back and saves him. He's calling out for him. They still don't understand, do they? Just that the men, as we saw last week, 
gambling for the garments of Jesus at the foot of the cross, ignorant of what was going on, what was unfolding right in front of their eyes, as so many people are today. And yet, in the midst of all of this misunderstanding, in the midst of all this evil and seeming chaos, all of those wonderful and glorious prophecies are being fulfilled in all that Jesus is doing. In every drop of blood, with every tear that is falling, with every cry from His lips, in all the circumstances that surround Him, God's Word is being validated and vindicated and established with every second that goes by. And our hope grows. Our faith builds. And our security increases as, as every second goes forward. As the Son of God in being who He is. Even though there is this rupture between He and the Father, He can't call God His Father now. But He cries out, My God, My God. There's that distance. The words Abba, the, the tender uh, language of Father and Son are no longer there because the Father is turning away in anger. He is making Jesus an object of His wrath. Jesus manages this, My God. Where are the words, Father? Where are those words which were always on the lips of Jesus? My Father, I thank You that You have always heard Me. But now it's My God. That is where we see the rupture. And yet, and yet, we do not see Jesus casting aspersions on His Father, calling His Father unfaithful, calling into question his, the love of His Father because He is still saying, though He is saying, My God, He is, still, he is saying nonetheless, My God! He is still owning God as His God. He is still saying, our people trusted in You. They put their trust in You and you, they were not put to shame for You are faithful. And I will believe that to my dying breath. And though there be this rupture, this distance, this darkness, though I be the sacrifice for sin itself, though I bear the curse of Almighty God, Yet, you are my God. You are true. You are praiseworthy. You are faithful. And that is Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the faithful one. He is the one who was, had faith even though all was gone. All was lost. All was dark. The rupture had occurred between He and the Father as He has made a curse. He has made sin for us. And yet, the cry of faithfulness and trust still emanate from His lips. My God. What an example. 
in that way Jesus is for us. When everything breaks down, when all the familiar markers are gone, when there's nothing but disorder and darkness and my God, my God, that might be all you have left and yet that's all you need. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know who it was saying. Somebody was saying it recently. It doesn't matter how long our prayers are. It's not, it's not the length of our prayers. It's, it's what is behind those prayers. Are they prayed in faith, holding on to God's mercy? This is what Jesus did until He finally dies. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. That word yielded, friends, again is so important because it tells us that Jesus, right till His dying breath, was in the driver's seat. He knew what was going on. He knew that He was on that cross paying the price for sin. And when He knew that the fire of the Father had passed, He cries out as it tells us in John's Gospel, it is finished. The bill is paid. The victory is won. It's done. Redemption is won. And in that cry, He could see you and I. He could see all His people down through time. They are mine. They are secure. They have been bought with my blood and with my life. And no man can take them from my hand because they have been bought with my blood and my life. They are secure. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We are safe in Him. And that's what Jesus saw from the cross. The joy that was set before Him. He endured the cross, scorning the shame. That's what He saw. The storm was past. And now as it tells us in, 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 in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, Father, there's that word back again, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. From Psalm 31. He had gained that sense of consciousness of the, of the Father's good pleasure and the Father's presence. He was able to say something that He could not say before because He knew that He, would been, he had now been brought from the far country. That the God had accepted His sacrifice and that though He would give up His life there on the cross, in three days He would rise again. The Father vindicating His final work. And there on that, with that, in the giving up of His life, in the delivering over of His soul, we, you and I, are the victors. Isaiah 53 again says, He shall see His seed he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Do you not think that that wasn't in the mind of Jesus as well on that cross? As he comes out the other side, after having paid, worked the atonement, paid for our sins, and those words in the heart of Jesus, he shall see his seed. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And He gives up His Spirit and dies. 
And because of that, because of what Jesus did, those agonizing hours on the cross when God was, there was a real legal transaction going on between God and your sin and my sin 2,000 years ago. How can it be? 2,000 years ago, the great exchange took place. Your sin for His righteousness. And because of that, when we call out to God in our darkest moments, we know we will never be cast away. We can embrace those words of Isaiah 30 and Psalm, Psalm 65 that we sang, the Lord waits to be gracious. He is exalted in showing you mercy. And that is more true now than it was the day it was written because Jesus Christ his Son is the one who did it. And the Father will never, ever turn away anyone who comes in that name. Because the fa- just as it was the Son's passion to do the Father's will, now it's the Father's passion to exalt the Son in the salvation of sinners like you and I. Will you then in the light of all that's before us here, can God show us any clearer? What more can God say to you to prove to you who He is? What more can God say to you to prove His view of your sin, of your life as it is? Then the cross of Christ where He bled and died and where the fire fell and the darkness surrounded. He's saying to you, will you not look? Is it nothing to you? I pray that your heart may be moved this morning to come and to see the provision that God has made for you in Jesus. Where can we go from here, friends? Where do we go? (laughs) That's the thing. The Gospel just pushes us into a corner. It leaves us with no alternatives. It says, this is what I have done. This is eternal life. That we may know Jesus. That they may know you, the only God, and Jesus whom you have sent. And as Jesus cried out in dereliction, we can now cry out in triumph and joy. We can come to God with joy inexpressible and full of glory for all that He has won for us. To say, oh, the love. How can I, I, and I will never ever doubt again, God, that God will be with me every step of the way, every day of my life, in every circumstance. If He so loved me in this way, how can I ever, ever doubt Him? And even this morning, He leaves for us a sign. You didn't get it here. You didn't understand it here so so well. Let me show you in yet another way. Let us pray. Lord, as we close, we pray that You would continue to minister unto us by Your Word and now by Your sacrament. We pray, O Father, we thank You for the, the bread and the wine which Jesus left to us on the very night He knew that uh, the, the night before He knew He would be a sin offering when darkness would engulf Him when the fire of God would fall upon Him. 
And yet, in loving us, He loved us to the end. Father, help us to continue to experience that love, not only in word, but in this supper that we will now partake of. Bless us, Lord, and draw us close to Yourself and forgive our many sins in the name of Jesus. Amen.